All right, today we're going to be talking about, uh, well, Mel Gibson in general. I just want a general conversation about the man. He's one of our more talented um, people on the earth. I mean, what, what, what about Mel Gibson uh, has not been said already? He's quite the, the actor and writer and filmmaker and uh, raging alcoholic. He's been uh, unfairly treated. I guess very, very unfairly criticized, scrutinized. Uh, we have Tim Stapers as the guest today. Tim, you are a filmmaker. We were just talking before. You're from the New England area. Uh, I checked out your short film. I believe it's called um, "Dream of Me," right? Yes, it's a. That's that's kind of a jokey self. It's a kind of a joke on myself because that's what movies are, and it was everything was made by me starring me so i was like man people are gonna think i'm an egomaniac so dream of me i was like i might as well just do that because basically i'm just like how do i imbue myself into people's brains so that they never forget <laughs> myself <laughs> right A regular tommy was so yeah exactly that i mean that was the that's why i was like i'll keep the nerf gun unpainted that was that was my way of taking myself down a peg even but, in spite of all that though because I mean, it was very well done. I was impressed with just how sleek everything looked. I think you did a great job with that short. Well, thank you very much. I did that all on uh, in the Adobe CS5 suite on a 2011 MacBook too. It there's I took some pictures of rendering times because it was there was <clears throat> that final shot where it's uh, a lot of like uh, compositing and stuff that. That I left my computer rendering for almost two weeks straight. Ooh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I nearly went insane. I nearly went insane. It's crazy. Happy to be done with it, and I can't wait to do the second one, which is probably going to start being promoted soon. You already have it finished. You're, you're, you filmed it. Uh, oh, no. I'm going to be promoting... I think I was uh, considering just get i was doing a gumroad pay but i don't think they're going to give me any money because i used some copyrighted stuff in it and i think i'm going to give that one away for free and just try to use that to boost interest in like maybe helping me fund the second one because basically i'd need like a year and a half's time to just work on solely that i guess it's very fitting that we have you on for the mel gibson episode because he is an all-encompassing uh, creative individual uh the movie that you had brought up specifically is a more recent film, something that slipped below my radar, and I think a lot of people's radar in general, which was the 2016 film uh, Bloodfather, which starred Mel Gibson, and actually had quite a few celebrity, I won't call them cameos, but that's really what they are. They show up for like five minutes and then they disappear. Michael Parks is one mm -hmm. of them, Thomas Mann from Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl, and also... Diego Luna, who I was not expecting to show up at all, because I didn't read much into this movie before starting. Right. And uh, William H. Macy's D in yes, it as well. Yes, of course, yeah. He's in that. Yeah. And um, they all die, right? Except, well, Thomas Mann. Yeah. Th yeah. Thomas Mann, I think, is just like a like a bellboy behind the, the counter at a hotel. I don't know why he took this job. I guess just to work with Mel Gibson. Yeah. But yes, yes. It, it feels... Yes, I remember that. I remember that. It feels that very machete, that, that part mm. of just having cameos for like a couple of minutes and then dead which uh mel gibson's in uh machete kills doesn't he play the uh, the so, president or somebody or is that charlie sheen i think he's like the evil corporate uh bad guy at the end i think this movie was more fun than i was expecting it to be we, we start the movie mm -hmm. and it seems to be 
I, I, it seems to be a pretty straightforward, like, cartel drama. But then when the cartel comes for Mel Gibson's daughter after they've reunited and he just goes into, like, full Mel Gibson mode, like, there's no veneer here that we're going to pretend like, oh, he's a little rusty. He's, no, he's just like Mel Gibson from Lethal Weapon, from Braveheart, from every movie you've ever seen. And uh, he's just nuts. He goes crazy. And I'm like, all right, th- this, is, this is great. This is exactly what I wanted. And yeah. uh, this movie's really good. I was, I was, uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I'm, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you liked it because uh, I think I, I had, we had briefly talked about uh, dragged on, uh, dragged across uh, concrete, and then like a, we kind of texted back and forth about Zoller stuff, and I thought this movie was kind of like a precursor to, to me looking really looking forward to. Uh, to dragged because I loved Zoller's earlier stuff. And I was like, Gibson in a Zoller film is, is perfect. And uh, I think they both kind of fall <laughs> under a, a new term that I've been using for some of these films, which is, is uh, it's white exploitation. I think if I, I, oh boy. <laughs> I feel like that's a term that's going to be <laughs> going to be thrown around at some of these movies because, or, or just race exploitation where, Every you can tell everyone involved is just they're doing they're doing whatever they're cast for and they're doing it in such a way that it's like genuinely yeah. good. Like when when you get when you cast a dude a Mexican dude with face tattoos to play a a cartel guy, you, he probably has some real stuff to draw on. And everybody's having a blast. And I love when art brings vastly different people together. And uh, peacefully, and uh, <laughs> and and you get something like that feels genuinely real, but at the same time, like hyper real, hyper artistic. Now, Hans, in, this, in the case of these movies, Hans, no, you're you're, um, you're Mexican. Were you offended by the cartel's uh, portrayal I, in this I movie? Am. I am. Yeah. I, <laughs> why didn't you join exactly the cartel? That would have been pussy. so cool. I could never what do. do any oh, of see, them Hans, movies. come on. Wonderful things they do. Uh, no, I actually like that a lot. I like the fact that they. They use people that sound and look like what the real cartel people look like. Uh, they're not afraid of, of offending someone for showing reality. Uh, now, uh, watching this, um, because I, I don't exactly remember why uh, Mel Gibson was blacklisted-ish by Hollywood. I don't remember if it was the you know the Jewish thing or the thing with the, with the cops or the thing with his ex-wife. But I thought that... Uh, he went more um, like Steven Seagal. I wish we had a soundboard right now so I could just play all the audio <laughs> I, from the, I Need to Be Blown. Um, it would have been so good. But, uh, the heavy, br- heavy breathing. The <laughs> yes. yeah. All of it. <laughs> because I honestly... I deserve to be blown. That's what he said. He deserves it. <laughs> Smile and blow me, he said. <laughs> I, I honestly... Who hasn't, he's who hasn't been there? there. Uh, you know, he's Steven just... Seagal. <laughs> He said what we were all thinking. Went, like, He's like a comedian. Yeah. And now yeah. I'm wondering if I just overlooked them because I thought that. And his movies have been fun, like this one. Because this one came out of nowhere. I was not expecting this to be fun. I thought it was going to be like a, you know, like a Nicolas Cage movie or something. Mm. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you what saying are you Nicolas saying? Cage films aren't fun, Hans? Yeah. I know somebody who's not going to be at <laughs> yeah. the National Treasure 3 premiere in like Yeah, I've never seen the movies. <laughs> You know, spe- well, I, speaking of... Uh, is it bad that I haven't seen a National Treasure film? 
It it is bad. Okay. It is yeah. bad. You haven't. I'm seen not them. saying I don't <laughs> like Nick Cage. Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, which is the worst title in movie history, was very very good. I would love oh. to do eventually a Bad Lieutenant retrospective. I haven't seen the Nick Cage Bad Lieutenant that Werner Herzog directed yet, but I I adore mm. the Abel Ferreira mm. uh, Harvey Keitel one. Just to see him cry over and over with that like pained face is is uh, one of my favorite things in the world. I just I, I was looking at Mel Gibson's IMDb right now, and it says as of literally today, this is breaking news: Lethal Weapon Five close to happening with Danny Glover, Mel Gibson, and Richard Donner. That's from Collider.com. Mm. Danny Glover, it seems like he's dying a slow death <laughs> with every movie he's in. Yeah, like no, you see, you see, you see him in Saw back in two thousand four, and he sounds like he has throat cancer, and then it's like twenty years later now, and he's still. Still muscling his way through movies, though he wasn't that. That was the wasn't he in with, um, <laughs> yes. with Danny Trejo, where they played this yeah. badass duo. I think it was a called black like, guy. Yeah, black that guy was guy that was based off of. Remember that viral video with the guy on the bus who beat yeah. the shit out of like the crackhead, and then they just decided to make a movie series out of that. That's what that was. Dan, uh, Danny Glover was last in Sorry to Bother You, which was the uh, Boots Riley socialism film. You know what I would love. I, I would love to see a matchup again of uh, Mel Gibson versus Gary Busey. Mm. That was in the first one, wasn't it? Yeah. Get a just set, bring him set. back? <laughs> just bring him back. Just have a is, uh, 75-year-old Gary Busey with his hair spiked up and his eyes bugged out. Is is Shane Black connected to a script, a movie that starts with a woman being killed and a plucky child sidekick as well? or? That's okay. You, I, I'm glad you made the joke before I did. His formula. I was going to say if, the, that's his yeah. formula. if there's no, if there's no children around the movie, he he wants nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very peculiar. Every movie, yeah, has kids. It's Christmas time. Mm. It's a he has weird, really weird platonic man boy relationships and man boy relationships. Yeah, I do not get it. It's almost it it. it it's, I don't want to. I don't want to make an excuse for him, but maybe it's like one of those market research mentalities where it's like, well, kids bring in the, you know, kids do this for the numbers. Uh, Christmas does this for the number. You know what I mean? It, it could be just all box office stuff, but I think that I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to also like paint away out of his corner for him. <laughs> Dude, I yeah. wanted a stupid movie out of The Predator, but I didn't want that stupid of a movie. That was unintentionally idiotic. Mm. <laughs> it's like, what was better? That the world, or but hold on. I need to arrange my DVD Predators. cases. Actually, now, <laughs> it, in retrospect, the Brody film. Yeah. Definitely. It, it was way more, um, I think, world building. And then it. Um, actually, Lawrence Fishburne kind of has a fun performance in it as well as this kind of uh crazy old kind of hermit who is who is trapped inside their 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 game simulation so to speak mm. it, i i saw that when it first came out and i was like eh not really my cup of tea but now in retrospect seeing what shane black shit out of his mouth holy crap man yeah predators 2010 was leaps and bounds ahead of this uh movie yeah that's surprising too. I feel like Shane Black, for the most part, has been pretty consistent with his screenwriting and directing. I've liked more of his work than I've disliked it. I thought The Nice Guys was one of the better movies of the decade. Maybe. That actually, actually was, was really, really good. good. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that, that one a lot. What could they possibly do with Lethal Weapon Five? 
man <clears throat> i don't know uh they're definitely too, have, they're definitely too old for this shit i can tell you that much have Riggs and murtaugh like <laughs> complain about texting and social media or something like that oh that would be terrible mm. <laughs> yeah. that's just what i see that's what I feel you, like oh. <laughs> they have to make this movie, I think, because the copyright will probably run out at some point. I know they did the Damon Wayans. Uh, I, I forget the other guy's name. There was some D-list actor who they had in for the Mel Gibson role. Stifler, yeah. And they did a Fox series for about three seasons. And then I think Damon Wayans got a cut on his ear and he threatened to sue production for uh, mistreatment or unsafe work environments. And that whole series wound up getting shut down because then they fired the main actor who was playing the Mel Gibson role. Zach Efron? Sean William Scott as the replacement. <laughs> he just couldn't do it. So this is probably just another attempt to hold on to that name for about 10 more years and then come out with the reboot or the rebrand down the road where they have who? Nick Cannon and and who's young and moderately racist nowadays? Uh, Chris Pine. <laughs> <laughs> I, what, what Kurt uh, Kurt Russell's kid, Wyatt? Oh, Wyatt. He's not he's not mildly racist though, but he is he is. I feel like he's dangerously underutilized right now. I, I thought he was good in Overlord. I enjoyed him. I have not Overlord. seen Overlord. I did see his episode of Black Mirror. Then he had that show on AMC, uh, Lodge Forty Seven or something like that. Hmm. Oh yeah, I I never checked that out, but the the trailers to that had Under the Silver Lake vibes to them. Did you see that? Actually, didn't I meant to, but it got canceled, and people really liked it. Yeah, but I guess just the ratings weren't there. But Jake, you, I don't think you watched the movie, but Hans, you did. What was your take on this film? Uh, I wasn't expecting it to get so rough. I guess again, I thought this was this was going to be just like a direct to DVD movie, so I I was not expecting it to get so violent and. <laughs> really, uh, you were surprised just, by the violence you know, in in in. I, I was, yeah. I, 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 because I didn't know what to expect. I didn't really look anything up about it. I just saw Mel Gibson and that's it. Uh, but then when you uh, mentioned that um, Dragon Across, Across Concrete, I was like, okay, so then this might be a little bit rough, but I was not expecting it to be like that. But I, I mean, I, I thought it was fun. I, I wasn't bored at all. I didn't really care much for the relationship between the da- uh, dad and daughter, but... Uh, I, I thought it was, I don't know, satisfying for the hour and a half that... Wait, I want to no, but I, I want to know what you were expecting, Hans, because it's a Mel Gibson action film, and you were surprised by I, violence and action. Yeah. I mean, you can look at the yeah, poster, and it, it'll give you an idea. I was going to say, the, the poster's him in a tank top with a gun. Yeah, right. What are, you, what are you talking about? <laughs> you were surprised by how rough it is. That's the thing. I thought... Because I thought that he went the director DVD Steven Seagal way. I wasn't expecting it to be as graphic, I okay, guess. Okay, I thought so it was just going to be like a... You like were a, expecting action where he shoots the gun and they pan away whenever he pulls the trigger. You don't see the, the result of that? <laughs> what? I thought, it, I thought it was going to be like a burn notice episode. Oh, oh the right. best way to put it. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So when a fifteen million dollar budget yeah. burn notice episode, <laughs> exactly, yeah. shoot me. Had you seen? Uh, had anybody seen Get the Gringo before no. watching this? I did not. Uh, you know, that's one. That's one I wanted to see okay. for the longest time. I don't know if it's available on any platforms right now or anything. Not, but I'm kind of had the totally same sure. vibe that. Yeah, it's. Uh, it gave me the same vibe that Bloodfather did when I saw the the previews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Get the Gringo is a little bit. 
it's a little bit more light. Like there, there's a a, a wonderful slow mo of him tossing two grenades over his shoulder as he walks out of a room at two guys. So it's like that type of violence, and it's a, uh, but it's that one's uh, I would highly suggest I highly suggest that one as well. That was those were the two that he made where it was like he was essentially gone from modern uh, consciousness, and then uh, I. I saw both of those and I was like, man, these are exceptional movies. I think, I think get the gringo. I think he, he was working with a lot of the guys that he worked on apocalypto with Mm. that were South American that were not, uh, you know, they didn't care what what was going on in the U S they were like, we'll continue to make movies with Mel Gibson. What do we care? Yeah. He's had, I think there is something to say he's in, he's in kind of a, or he, at least in that time frame, he was in a real grindhouse phase. Mm. Because a few, a couple of years before that, if you guys hadn't seen it, I believe he was in the third Expendables as the, he was the, the main villain of the Expendables that was yeah. quote unquote there when it all started. And he has a really fun and crazy performance in that one as well. I think that was 2014, I want to say. I did see it when it came out and he was the best part of the movie, I think by far. Mm. And then, yeah, you go down a few more years and yeah, you get films like Bloodfather Get the Gringo, and there's actually probably a couple others. Did he make one? Um, I would even with a puppet or a stuffed animal. Yes, or something? the Beaver. That was <laughs> Jody, Jody Foster. That, yeah. A Grindhouse classic. The Beaver. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's had a very niche career following the whole blow up, and he's had a couple of moments where it was like, "Oh, is Mel Gibson back for real?" Because I remember that talk was happening around the time the Beaver did come out. Because there was there was a little bit of time in between. I think when he directed Apocalypto. And when he started appearing in movies again, the first one he did, I think, since the blow up was Edge of Darkness, which was a, an adaptation of um, some some BBC series where they set this one in Boston. And that one I remember being pretty decent. And then he followed it up with The Beaver. And that was supposed to be like, oh, well, he's doing serious movies again. But that movie just kind of was a dud. It, it was dead on arrival. Um, and then we see the trajectory where it's doing movies like The Expendables and Machete Kills and Bloodfather and uh, all, all these films. And then finally, it seems like what really reintegrated him back into the whole mainline entertainment system is uh, directing Hacksaw Ridge. That really mm. put him back into the fold as at least uh, a director. Yeah. Well, what did you guys think of that movie? Uh, I'm guessing you all saw it, right? I did. Um, I thought, uh, considering the shooting schedule and the amount of money he was working with, uh, and he talked about it, about the fact that he had, you know, a third of the amount of money he had to make Braveheart and, uh, and like, he only had like a month and a couple of weeks to shoot. And, uh, I thought it was pretty exceptional. I mean, it's a, it's a awesome story anyway, that guy is a very unique individual, uh, the subject of that film. So that, and it's, it's kind of a anti-war war movie, which is, was super refreshing because, uh, you know, it, when I think of anti-war war movies, I think of like apocalypse now, or like these, these, um, kind of like over the top where it's not, it's not really a, it's not necessarily an accurate representation of exactly, uh, something that happened, Whereas this was this guy, they went up this ridge and this dude saved like 70 people and everybody was like, 
this is the guy that won't even hold a gun. You know what I mean? And, uh, and I thought that that whole element I felt like was almost a, <laughs> the, the Mel Gibson return to Hollywood thesis statement where he was like, uh, he's like, all right, I'm going to, I'm not going to be doing, I'm not going to be doing, uh, or I'm not going to be putting up a huge fight as I come back into this fray. I'm going to just kind of let my work speak for itself. There's a roundtable discussion. I don't know if anybody saw this. I think it was a, one of the Hollywood Reporter roundtable discussions yes, yeah. where uh, he was there. And uh, I thought that was – he said a lot of stuff where I was just like, man, that's exactly kind of how I view the the medium. He talked about film and stuff. And I'd suggest that to anybody if they wanted to see a very uncomfortable man who's afraid of everyone bringing things <laughs> up while he's sitting there, you know? Yeah, I, I do recall all of the directors. I think Spike Lee might have been at the table just kind of glaring at mm. him. As he was speaking, it was it was during that time. I think it, I think it was uh, what 2017, 2018, whenever uh, the Oscar race was uh, between Black Klansman and Hacksaw Ridge mm. and whatever else was nominated that year. So yeah. that that's actually a very good uh, clip. I do like those Hollywood Reporter roundtables. They've been releasing a few of them uh, recently with the directors and actors that are nominated for the Academy Awards this year. Mm. What do you guys think is Mel Gibson's best? film that he's acted in that has come out in this decade? Well, an easy one that jumps to mind is obviously Zoller's Dragged Across Concrete, just because it gives them kind of like what you were saying, Lorez, upon your first viewing of the film. It's it's so novel-esque in that it just gives you so much time to understand these characters, their plight. They, they're interpreted initially as stereotypes, but then as the film plays out and you just get to spend so much more elongated time with the characters, the performances really help flourish and, and really kind of flesh out what you would initially see as two tropes, these two kind of brutish aging cops. And Gibson gives uh, an incredibly nuanced performance. And he, I mean, this this past decade, he really didn't get too many like that he's had some great kind of over-the-top roles if you think of again expendables three or uh bloodfather etc stuff like that he hasn't had anything really meaty that's given him again uh the room to pontificate the way he was able to as the character in what was essentially a three-hour crime noir in I, i'm uh, looking at his imdb and i think the only one i've seen is bloodfather i'm reading um but the professor and the madman and that shit sounds boring. <laughs> oh, well, I could, <laughs> we I could we talked about that briefly. Oh my God. We got into I that for a moment it after. I watched it yet. It's so, it's uh it was buried for many many years and then it finally got like a red box release out of the blue. Just him and Sean Penn on the cover. <laughs> Nobody has talked about this movie. And I believe, I remember seeing an article, I didn't read the article, I just saw the headline, so it could be totally fabricated, that he had bought the movie, or he it's paid to have the movie in his uh, custody or whatever, so he could just hide it forever. But it eventually came out. So, mm-hmm. Professor and the Madman. We talked about it briefly on the Jacob's Ladder episode of Movies that we did, which is another terrible, terrible film. Um, the new one, not the original so, 1991. I, so, I did rent this movie, uh, the Professor and the Madman uh, this past year on Redbox because I saw it at the at the kiosk. And it it kind of looked like I just a cool read the movie premise like and it's radar. Just, and, why? No, because well, no, because I thought to myself, 
<laughs> I thought to myself, okay, it has a cool period setting. Gibson's always good. <laughs> no matter what movie he's in, he never has a bad performance. And the setting might make this cool. Who knows? I mean, I could not keep myself awake. Why? <laughs> oh I, my God. Who, what? I, yeah. I'm, I'm excited, though, about the fact that apparently uh, Passion of the Christ 2 is slotted for 2021. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's. Mm. Yeah. Four. It's happening. <laughs> Which, hey, can we talk about that really quickly? Because that was, again, obviously, I think that was 2005 or 2004. That, that was a really... 2003 or four, yeah. Yeah, a really provocative film for the time and everything. And I, I remember seeing that just after it came out. Like, we rented it when Blockbuster was still on its last legs. Um, what Did you guys have any impression of that movie? Or with the idea of the uh, of a of a second one coming out? What are, what are you guys' thoughts? I mean, I thought it was a very technically well-made film. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I, I, I couldn't really give an accurate uh, critique of it or analysis of the, of the film. Mm. Uh, what about you, Tim? I, um, I've watched it. I, I Actually, I've watched it again recently. Uh, that Both that and Apocalypto I've watched again recently. But uh, I would say that I remember Quentin Tarantino, of all people, really enjoyed uh, Passion of the Christ when it came out. Because he's kind of like doesn't give a rat's ass about what everybody's it's, saying. Because about no one wore shoes in the Bible. Tell you, I liked this because. Yeah, he loved the Lone Ranger when that did he really? Army Hammers the Lone Ranger. Yeah, one of his best films of the Doesn't year. Surprise me. Um, he liked it uh, because he was like, I don't think I've seen a film since the silent film era that's had imagery that's that that's stuck with me that long. That's that striking, and uh, mm. I. The the reason I rewatched it was uh, I recently did like a fan edit of um, a music only version of uh, what was it Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, that ties in with uh, Mel um, of Mad Max Fury Road because that's what I remember George Miller saying. He, that's how he preferred it as just a silent film with a musical score, and I wanted to. I thought that passion could. Bet it could be really good that way, and I was rewatching it, and I couldn't believe how long certain stretches were with zero, just no dialogue whatsoever, and it's just these long stretches of just musical score and 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 sound effects, and I feel like the sound effects make it almost too brutal to watch sometimes, where you could see the artistry, because I, I don't know, I'm always like there's the Sistine Chapel and there's the La Last Supper, and like I always think like just Christian iconic imagery is always where somehow yeah. for some reason it's always, it never goes out of style. So I felt like that mo particular movie was why people ran about Hollywood because it, <laughs> it made more money than anything. Up, and then I, I think some of them do. I, and that's why I think it's kind of like uh, there are certain movies where when they're in color, the effects don't look great. But as soon as they're in black and white, somehow they make sense. It just becomes more abstract. Yeah. And I feel like that film would benefit from being it's in black and white. Even though I, this sticks in my mind still is uh, from the first time I saw it is when that whip comes over his back and rips out. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah. When the uh, whip comes over his back and rips out pieces of his skin, like that's... But that was burned in my brain. I was like, good God, how'd they do that? Yeah. 
<laughs> I loved the South Park yeah, yeah. take. I loved the South Park take where the kids were like, that was a snuff film. I want my Jesus money back. <laughs> totally. Oh, like yeah. they didn't even show him like multiply the fish or turn the water to wine. Like, hey, give us some levity. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. King Her- King Herod has a couple jokes, yeah. but they don't go. They don't really land, you know. <laughs> I, I I did think I just uh, like that also the his called the, passion the way the he Christ, portrayed the, the demons like pretty stark and and uh, unsettling. I wish they had done the same thing that the Bible miniseries had done with the demons and just made them all look like Obama. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that. That could have been that could have been great about that. Oh man, what do you guys think is one. is uh, Mel Gibson's best film that he's directed? For the sake of argument, maybe we can just take out Braveheart because that that got yeah. all the awards and everything, and everybody knows that one. It's it's, it's got Satan, all the cliches. I mean, yeah. it's it's a such a masterfully put together movie. It's hard to not say that that's his best, but I think I think a little bit more critical thinking is due because he he's for whatever reason just associated pretty much with Braveheart. Even like Passion of the Christ is kind of an afterthought, even in general casual kind of movie conversations. So I feel like for a guy that's such a strong, competent, and really good director, I think he's he's only kind of credited kind of as this one-trick pony for an English-Scottish war epic. What would you say is his worst? Probably, probably Apocalypto, right? Like, is that, is oh, that the consensus? Oh, uh, that would be, that uh, would be, uh, I actually would say that not only is Apocalypto my favorite of his, it's... Uh, it may be one of the greatest films ever made, in my opinion. <laughs> well, hell yeah. <laughs> That's I I, I think off, Apocalypto is probably his strongest. I I'm mean, going off the critical sphere. That one has like the, the most kind of lukewarm reaction to it. Maybe it's a little too I don't know. I actually it doesn't check off all the boxes, apparently. I actually uh I, I thought of this story before we were doing this because I thought this kind of ties into like cur- the current kind of like cancel culture. Um was uh I remember sitting in a theater in in uh, Branford, Connecticut, which was the town over from where I went to high school. And I remember, you know, very uh, you know, politically, you know, blue the bluest state, one of the bluest states. So it's like politically, obviously, they were well aware of the Mel Gibson uh, tirades, and and were not not into him. And and this was the height of the uh, uh, the story takes place during the height of like the media storm. And now thinking back about it, I'd like to check the dates, but the media storm surrounding him kind of started right when the trailers were coming out for Apocalypto. And I remember sitting in a theater, seeing the trailer for Apocalypto the first time and people booing when they saw that it was directed by Mel Gibson. And, uh, and that was, I, I felt like, um, I felt like that now I'm like, oh, that seemed like they probably waited when, until this film was because he was coming off of, you know, Passion being one of the highest grossing films in history. And then in comes his next movie and uh, everybody's and it's like, you know, here's, you know, we're going to portray him as a racist. And meanwhile, the entire crew and every single person is non-white in the whole thing. And and I now, in retrospect, I think about it, but I, I, 
I just remember hearing everybody boo and, and me being like, that's a screen. He can't hear you. Like <laughs> that was my major critique at the time. Cause I couldn't be bothered to pay attention to news. I was too busy trying to get laid. You know? so, I, I was going to say, Jake, you, you would note, you had noted that that probably received the most lukewarm impression critically. And it, I think it's entirely because of when it did drop, like Tim is pointing out here. I have a feeling that that probably played a part in why people might have uh, negged it. I, I think, I mean, he's only directed a couple of films. The obvious answer would probably be The Man Without a Face. It's his least epic of the movies that he's produced. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, he had a couple of moments where it seemed like his career was over. The, I mean, it all gets jumbled together now in retrospect, but the the meltdown at his wife and then the cops and then all the alcoholism in the comments, I think was separated by a couple of years or, or maybe about a year, roughly, mm-hmm. which is why there's a four-year gap between his directing and the release of Apocalypto and when he comes back as an actor in Edge of Darkness. Uh, before that, he was just working on Passion of the Christ and he produced the, the movie Paparazzi, which I think is about a guy who goes crazy about paparazzi and starts murdering reporters so oh i i remember that one you know what let me i'm gonna i'm gonna look into that really quickly while you guys uh, dig up some more info oh man so it, my point is just peculiar timings with the yeah. critical reception speaking of peculiar stuff surrounding that time is i went back and uh you know just given the nature of kind of i think the current slide towards a total distrust of the mainstream media and in, in everybody especially the united states it seems um but i went back and i was like did he actually say uh you know this stuff what what actually happened what where is can i read a re- police report so i went back and i looked up some reporting from that time and we all know uh is it what's his name uh is it levin the guy from TMZ, the guy who like runs TMZ. Oh, Harvey Levin. Or Harvey whatever? Harvey Levin. Yeah, Harvey Levin. Um, there were, I found this clip of Harvey Levin standing in front of uh, the uh, sheriff's office in L.A. and he is he's standing there basically saying they're covering up what he said because the sheriff released a statement saying Mel Gibson was arrested without incident. Now, <laughs> to me, I'm like, what? Without incident, uh, I, you know, I all I heard was every mainstream media outlet say, repeating the same thing. So then there was another, like, there's another press junket clip for Edge of Darkness where some guy's asking him, so you're you're back. Um, and after everything that happened, and Mel le- leans forward and he goes, what happened? <laughs> and, yeah, I've seen that yeah, clip. That's, yeah, that's and cool. he's like, uh, he's like, well, that I didn't necessarily say. And he goes, so, you know, allegedly. And then I think he calls him an asshole or something, but, yeah. but I, that clip stuck with me. And then I went back and looked and I was like, there's a very strong possibility that this was all some sort of orchestrated uh, hit piece. But that's, that's the, um, I have another stream where all we do is get into conspiracy theories. So that's the conspiracy theory part of my brain, like kicking Well, uh, Were there no audio leaks for the, no, the arrest at all? Or is it just exclusively for the, the wife when she put out the voicemails? I think that's just, I think the, all the recordings, because I, I heard those were the, was the wife stuff, I think. Mm. 
yeah yeah the wife stuff that's is where he, he that's the one where you can actually say okay he said a couple things in there that uh yeah that would get you in some hot water so but yeah the whole mm. the whole traffic stop thing mm-hmm. i've seen nothing i've seen nothing but conjecture on that i mean it's funny as hell i mean if you called somebody sugar tits that's fucking funny <laughs> <laughs> but that also sounds like a line out of um uh, 50 shades of gray so somebody could have just came up with that right it's all I, yeah that's that's the thing it all sounds like things that you could imagine mel gibson saying very easily especially if you do listen to those, but, those I mean, voicemails and also if you just go back to like interviews with him in the 1980s or 90s he's very candid about his thoughts hmm. regarding certain matters well hold on did uh, you did you forget he was in the movie what women want in 2000 Oh yes, oh, yeah. he was just letting out. He he thought he was living in that movie maybe for for a few minutes. And uh-huh. Classic. Just let that inner monologue slip out. Did they give him a cameo in in What Men Want, the Taraji P Henson reboot? Oh man, why wouldn't you recast him in that? The possibilities would be incredible. Yeah, the, <laughs> the free advertising from all the uh, hate um, news would be enough. <laughs> To, to put it over the edge. I had asked earlier what his best performance of the decade was. And in retrospect, that's kind of an easy question. I think it, it, it's clearly far and away dragged across concrete because that's yes. that's the best film he's done of this, this past uh, period of time. What do you think his best performance in general has been, though? Can I give you kind of a one that probably won't be cast at the forefront? It, it was the movie that really, because again, given my age, it was the movie that really got me into knowing and knowing who Mel Gibson was from that day on. Signs, M. Night Shyamalan Signs. That was probably one of the first movies I had seen. Where after that, it was I knew Mel Gibson and everything he was in, hmm. and uh, maybe with a lesser cast because you, you have to think you have Mel Gibson, you have Joaquin Phoenix, then you have Shyamalan who was still kind of on the top of his game at that time. But if you have a less uh, a lesser cast, that's that might not be as good of a movie as as I still think it is. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I I don't necessarily disagree with that opinion. Hmm. Just because he's doing something that's very off type for him compared to at least what he had done to that point, where yeah, maybe he's playing the concerned father, uh, you know, just as he's getting older. But he was he was still like at the top of his game, an action star. He was doing movies like Ransom. Uh, I think Payback was another one of them. Uh, he was in Conspiracy Theory. So uh, I, I don't disagree with the idea that that role required more of him as an actor. Uh, and he did well in it. So. I, uh, I'm going to pull out, I'm going to pull out the, uh, you know, <clears throat> card carrying film nerd, like <laughs> film school nerd one and say uh, Hamlet. Uh, because, when I came, the, the the Brenna film uh, was it Brenna uh, that was in uh, that with him? Uh. Maybe what he he played Hamlet, right? But I would say yeah. that only because when you consider the fact that this whole this man Mel Gibson's whole career rested on playing Mad Max because he showed up to the casting with a friend not to be cast, but he had been in a bar fight the ne- the night before, so he looked like shit. Uh, and George Miller was like, oh. Why don't you do a reading? And then he did, and now this guy's like one of the biggest, one of the biggest uh, stars in the world. Uh, to me, a guy who has no formal, real formal training and goes on to play Hamlet, and he does like a pretty awesome job. But 
I would say conspiracy theory, ironically, has some of the best scenes. When he has his eyes taped open and he's trying to escape in that wheelchair, there's a comedy, a, a terrifyingness to those scenes. And like, I don't know, he skates this line really well, in my opinion, where where especially when he says he's flying. I don't know if you guys remember it that well, but uh, I watched it recently. <laughs> I caught it while I was in Miami because HBO has had a habit of like playing those mid-budget, but they were still really popular action films from the 90s mm-hmm. that don't get made anymore where you have Mel Gibson in a role and a movie was probably made for like 30 to $50 million. And it's crazy how far away we've gotten from just like those kinds of movies being theatrically accessible. Yeah, that was those were the days when Hollywood studios would make five $10 million movies and then one that was, you know, a hundred million. And now it's yeah. this one where is the one we're making and it's $250 million and you have to have 18 cameras rolling at all times and we'll build it in editing, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. These, so the singular vision is a thing of the past. I think it's on the rise though. It seems to be As, coming back. Yeah, that's for sure. Just a, Mel, Mel Gibson films of recent can show that. I mean, yeah. Dragged across concrete, I think, is a prime example of that. Mm-hmm. And I would—I was actually going to say you guys I think- are an example of that, too. Like, these—this is the best time, ironically, to be doing—to uh, be doing what we're doing is because uh, the distribution now is something we—that was always the big gate, was distribution. And now we can reach everybody on the planet with— uh, comfort systems things like that sure yeah i you know, that that's the thing too and i look at uh, also just like comedy in general from this kind of perspective where you have a lot of people who are being uh, you know they're 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 pretty successful at this moment in time but a lot of a lot of their discussions revolve around well we can't do that anymore we can't say that anymore whatever it might be when you can literally just do that and say that and you have this open wide platform you just have to change the means of how you distribute Mm. I'm thinking of Joe Rogan in particular. A lot of his conversations are just like, ah, you can't say that now. It's like, what are you talking about, dude? You have you have a you get two million downloads on your podcast on YouTube alone. You can say whatever the fuck you want. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this, the same rule applies for filmmaking. You're not maybe going to get that wide distribution in theaters like you would have in 1987. Mm. Uh, but if you do choose to learn what venues you have accessible to you, then you're not going to have any immediate problems anyway yeah and i also think you know to go against the joe rogan mentality which is how do i water myself down to be as um you know uh what do you call it attractive to as many yeah uh, to as many people as possible there i think the reverse is true now if you are adamant about hey if you think this i don't agree with you hit the road, don't be part of my audience. That only makes the people who really want to be there happier and more have more of a community around your art or whatever it is that, or whatever the content you're creating. And as a result, they feel like they're part of something and which they are. And then you have 30,000 people who buy every single thing you put out versus 2 million that casually watch and go, Oh, all right. Yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, yeah you know, absolutely. Great point about that. Like, there's something I brought up. I actually, it was kind of a joking post, but it was also serious. I said it last week. It's about 
picking a creative lane and just committing to it and trying to be the best at it. And again, kind of like tongue in cheek, but still making a serious point. Uh, I cited Tyler Perry, who he ha- he's kind of a one trick pony and he does his thing and he has this small, dedicated, but very passionate audience. And the guy is worth six hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. And you think of the movies he's made. He spends five million dollars to make them and they'll make about 15, 20 mil a piece, but then times that by 15 movies and then all the other properties he has. It's amazing. Once you decide to not please everybody, what you can be capable of. Yeah. You know, my feelings about Tyler Perry are so complicated because everything he's released is just a total piece of shit. But it's (laughs) every movie, every movie TV show is distinctly his. It has Mm. his stamp. It has his like his signature on that. So I, 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 I have like a fundamental respect for him on that level. But I can't I can't even fathom the idea of sitting through a minute of a Medea film. I, I ironically, I I had never seen a single thing. And then a friend of mine who was a comedian, uh, last name Rodriguez, she goes, uh, she goes, oh, have you ever watched a Tyler Perry movie? You should watch one. They're actually pretty funny. And I watched one and I was pleasantly surprised. But that was because my expectations were so low. That uh, I just found myself saying, oh, this is actually, these are kind of good jokes. Okay, that's good. This is better than I Should we do expected. a Tyler Perry <laughs> retrospective then? Absolutely. So is Let's it, do it. <laughs> is it, uh, is it on purpose funny, f- funny or, or are you just uh, racist? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, on purpose. I, I found myself saying, oh, this is, this is good. You know, it's, it, at first I was thinking of like, uh, you know, that when he pitches the driveway to the execs in the whitest kids, you know, sketch where he's like, he just describes a bunch of name. I don't know if anybody's seen that, but it's just, he's described, he's like, uh, you know, Queen Latifah gets out and she does this funny head bob thing that she does. Like his whole movie is just a bunch of famous black people getting out of a limo. That's his pitch. And he's like, and it's called the driveway. And they all hang out in the driveway. And I was like, that's, that's funny. And that's what I expected Tyler Perry movies yeah. to be, but they actually had a story, and I was like, oh, I kind of care about these characters. This is oh, this is decent. That was only one, yeah. though. He's done five hundred. <laughs> He's yes. done five hundred. She she probably picked the best one to show me. So you're not on like season four of Meet the Browns. You're not you're not <laughs> tuning into. I don't even know what Meet the Browns is. So I hope that's the title. If not, I'm done for. <laughs> <laughs> Meet the beep. Just gonna beep it. <laughs> let's talk about dragged across concrete a little bit because that is his most recent film i believe or actually if you take a look at the imdb and wikipedia the professor and the madman is technically <laughs> his most recent but everybody here has seen dragged across concrete right actually hans i don't i don't you said you did no right? i i'm uh 90 minutes in i was watching it before recording this i thought i was gonna have it enough time weren't you complaining about it didn't you didn't you hate brawl and cell block 99 i didn't hate it i just you I hated it. No, you were talking no, shit I didn't about hate it. it. I just Own th- your opinion. I just Hans. thought that whenever they would do um, practical effects, like the head bit when he stepped on it, or some of the violence took me out of it because he was very cartoony. Uh, mm. So that I felt like that didn't really go with the tone of the rest of the movie. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't a wasn't a huge fan. I, I have a friend who who wasn't big on. He he didn't like Brawl and Cell Block ninety nine. He loved Bone Tomahawk. Yeah, but uh, he didn't like he didn't like Brawl, and I don't know. I haven't talked to him since I saw Dragged, and I was like, you should check it out. But uh, I don't know what he thought about that one. 
I felt like you're not it, alone. It was just a little, a little too, <clears throat> too much like um, angry white dad energy uh, for me yeah. to be like, this guy's. Why is he punching his car? You know, like that, that shit. Well, I was hey, just gonna. You know, you know what? You know, Hans, that's just something you'll never understand when your son <laughs> gets a strike three called on him by uh, a malintended umpire. Sometimes you got to duke it out after chugging some Bud Heavies. Yeah. See, I, that scene as a as a quiet tall white male i that scene really stuck with me i was like i've been i've been there where you're like can you just uh i'm gonna i'm gonna go in the other room i'm gonna i'm gonna get this aggression out and then i'll come in and talk to you i i i don't know i i uh i was pleasantly surprised but i think i i think i watched the s craig zollers in the right order because i do think brawl is his weakest one despite me still kind of really enjoying that because that was the first time I saw that and it was so refreshingly different than anything I'd seen in such a long time. I, I welcomed it. I was like, great. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll suggest this to people. Watch this one again. I would say that even his weakest film, which I don't even know. I, I don't know if I would say it was Brawl and Cell Block 99. It's still better than the average filmmaker's mm. best film. Um, if we're counting his writing credits, I mean, uh, Puppet Master. Oof, that was that was a difficult watch at some point. I mean, it it, it served its function, yeah. but check it out, Hans. Maybe you'll like that one. Oh, that's the one with the little yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> I was actually interested in watching that. The littlest Reich. The littlest Reich. Mel Gibson should have been in that one. I, <laughs> I did. You guys know why he wasn't in uh, Matt and Max Fury Road at all? I was actually kind of expecting. Because he it was still uh, socially taboo in the system to hire him in like a real mainstream movie. That's why that's why he did all these like low budget independent films that were released by Lionsgate and, and smaller companies of that matter during the early aughts. It was still uh, not okay to, to put Mel Gibson in a real movie. I mean, again, it was just after Hacksaw Ridge that he was able to hop back into like family films like Daddy's Home 2. There was... There was People were very upset about that. Oh boy! People were living. I remember laughing hysterically when he was coming down. Those slow mo shots of him coming down the escalator. I was like, "Absolutely, yes. I'll, I'm on board." There, Absolutely. Is there a scene I'll where he gets this. pulled over by a cop? But the, it, he they. They brushed it off, and why he wasn't in Fury Road is that he was too old to play the part. But uh, I don't think that's that's true in the least. When you look at the casting of the villains, who are all very old, I think I think he would have yeah. loved to have had Mel play it. And uh, Mel sat on one side of George Miller at the premiere, and uh, Tom Hardy sat on the other side. So it's not like he wasn't like, you know. It's not like George Miller has anything against uh, Mel Gibson. I mean, they've known each other forever, but uh, but yeah, I think that's what I got it as. He wanted people to see right. his movie, and even Mel was like, "I want people to see your movie. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go in it and, and and risk you, you know, not having people see this." Uh, to tie in uh, Quentin again, though, he had he said he refused to see Fury Road for a while. In an interview, because uh, Mel Gibson, no or uh, to uh, to see Mad Max, and he said no feet. Yeah, he said um, <laughs> he said uh, he was like Mel, uh, Mel Gibson is Mad Max. There, nobody else is Mad Max to, for me. And he was like, and then 
to cast a, a UK actor instead of an another Australian, I thought was also a bad choice. And he said, then I saw it and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So he, but, uh, but I kind of agree with him in in terms of not that I have anything against Hardy's performance, but I thought it could it should have been a what a another Aussie cast in the role. <laughs> Liam Hemsworth, you know what I'm saying? Liam Hemsworth no. as Mad Max. No, no. no. <laughs> uh, you know who the star I you know who of I Independence to Day too. Let's. Uh, how's about Paul Hogan instead of either of the Hemsworth brothers? <laughs> Hasn't he been dead for 12 years? Crocodile Dundee is never going to be dead. You understand me? Okay. (laughs) I had something I was going to go off. Oh, right. Uh, So George Miller gets Mad Max after he had done two Happy Mm. Feet movies for Warner Brothers. And he was kind of, he was in a weird spot as a director. He had done a bunch of family films. I know he did the two Babe movies right before that. And then he had his movie where he was going to do a Justice League film. And then the plug got pulled on that at the last minute. And, you know, it, it's kind of funny. If Warner Brothers did uh, veto the decision to cast Mel Gibson in Fury Road, within only two years, they wanted him directing the sequel to Suicide Squad. Did you guys hear about this? I, I, think, I, I think initially, yeah, think after vaguely. that pile of shit came out, they're like, oh, yeah, Mel Gibson, he'll do the next one. And no, thank Christ, no. <laughs> well, you prefer James Gunn doing I prefer, it over Mel Gibson? I prefer no Suicide Squad movies ever again after the fucking trash heap that was the <laughs> original film. What, you don't want more Harley Quinn? You're not going to be in line for Birds of Prey? Speaking of Aussies, uh, Jai Courtney. Holy shit. Talk about somebody who fucking sucks at acting. He's in that, too. He, I'll tell you what. He's, a, he's not a great actor, but I like him as Captain Boomerang. Okay, all right, fine. That's the one time I've seen him be enjoyable in a film, is, the, is Suicide Squad, which is why they kept him and they kept Margot Robbie and Viola Davis. Oh, wait, Everybody else Margot Robbie, another Aussie. So, you know what? Mm. Mel, Gib- Mel Gibson is kind of... It's weird for him because he's technically American, but he spent a lot of formative time in Australia. I mean, he's he's all they got. Like, who do they have? Like, yeah, we threw out the Hemsworths, but they're kind of... Eh. Like, is there really anybody that that has picked up the mantle for the land down under since Mel kind of just went off the reservation? Jim Jeffries of uh, Comedy Central. <laughs> Jim Jeffries. He's Australian. Show. Yeah, no. sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, what is what is what is Mel Gibson's real voice like? Because we know that he lived in Australia, and I've heard him in interviews in the past speak with an Australian accent, but then you see. Tim, as you had mentioned, that that Hollywood Reporter roundtable, he's he's speaking in an American accent, and that seems to be the case with most of his like uh, interview clips and uh, people going up to him on the street, talking to him, harassing him, putting a camera in his mm-hmm. face. Yeah, I uh, I wonder about that myself because I actually I had a friend in like kindergarten, first grade. He was uh, American, had no accent. Then his parents became like uh, missionaries in Australia or something. And uh, he then he came back four or five years later and suddenly he had an accent. And I I, I feel like that mentality of uh, I just want to blend in. I don't want everybody to <laughs> I don't want everybody to say, hey, this guy, you know, so maybe he maybe if we look at some Aussie TV interviews that uh, Mel's done now, maybe he still puts it on when he's over there and, 
you know, t- tones it down it over here. Who knows? I, I remember Gary Oldman saying that he had done so many American parts that he had started to lose his English accent, his natural voice. Oh, bullshit. And there's a, <laughs> there's a clip of him. There's a, I mean, in, in Dark Knight. He, he started turned into yeah. the character, well, from, character uh, he, from True Romance. It, they knew we were character yes. he plays has a different yeah. accent and a different voice. He gave a mocked bills. <laughs> Have you guys seen a yeah. Summer or... Or uh, yeah. just looking at like it, the first things he ever did, Summer City Tim, no. the uh, Up Show. There's there's a couple of those, yeah, but there's a couple of films too. Are you Batman reading X. off like uh, soap opera episode uh, titles right now? <laughs> well, his actual Australian accent recorded on film. Mm. I, I I don't know. Who take the lead on that, Hans? <laughs> what does the future hold for Mel? Do you think? Do you think a, a real studio is going to release The Passion of the Christ Resurrection? Because we know that Mel has enough money in his own uh, studio and just in general. His net worth is huge thanks to that first movie where he can fund that movie and probably any movie he wants for the indefinite future. But will we see like Disney put this out since they put out? I mean, Fox put out the last one. No, mm. I, no, I, I don't think. Uh, the other question is, is. Will it, is it even worth it for him to put it in theaters? Because that particular audience, you know, if we're you know speaking stereotypically, I guess about the audience that's going to be psyched about Passion of the Christ two, Boogaloo or whatever, um, the <laughs> those people would sooner buy just buy a blu-ray dvd or whatever right out of the gate and uh or you know or watch it on it it, it, no streaming service is probably going to pick it up maybe amazon just because they love money you know bezos is he loves money so i think that might actually be the answer i could see him cutting a deal with amazon where he gets something like the refin deal or spike lee deal where it's like all right yeah we know this is going to make money and maybe we'll get a little scrutiny over it but, you know, you were in daddy's home, too. So, I mean, how taboo is this? How, how bad could it be? Uh, and, and they will uh, rack up tons of cash from that where maybe it'll get a limited theatrical release and uh, it'll be quickly shuffled off to streaming uh, for, for who knows how long. But I can't see it. And Mel Gibson's like, I, I feel like he's 60 something years old. He probably has the traditional idea in his head of how a movie should be released. So I, I can't imagine he would want to go direct to streaming with that. And I will say, even though the typical audience would probably be more likely to pick up a DVD of it, uh, there is a contingent out there that shows up to the more Christian-oriented films. And we, we can take a look at the lesser ones, like God's Not Dead <laughs> 2 and 3, that, that series. Or what was that abortion film that came out recently where it's like the uninvited? a woman is haunted by her almost... <laughs> Uh, miscarriage or something. I, I didn't hear about that. <laughs> I, it was a uh, very controversial yeah. or something. I don't know. And uh, that, I mean, these movies all make pretty decent money. Those people show mm. up for whatever oh, yeah. reason. Uh, yeah. So I, th- I think there might be something to the idea of at least having a limited window for this type of film in theaters. Mm. At the very least, we're going to get something shot on film, probably, if he's doing a. If he's doing another passion movie, it'll be shot on film and it will probably be 
very well made. That's the thing that I look forward to. Is uh, anything shot on film these days is refreshing. Well, actually, uh, since you since we're on this topic, w- would you guys see this? Because we were going at it from the angle a little bit earlier about the original film was again technically really on point, proficient, but the problem was the subject matter. It was just you know Christ getting his ass kicked for two hours. But if there's something a little bit more uplifting, is something a little bit more, I think, optimistic. Is that something you guys would be interested in, uh, like in terms of the material? Or I, I'm just I'm I'm curious to see what what he would do yeah. with the story from there. So yeah, I I am yeah. definitely interested to see what Mel Gibson's proposed follow up to that movie. And you know what? To to go off on that tangent, there's been biblical epics, if you want to call them that, in the last five to ten years. Uh, Think of the remakes of Ben Hur, like the mm. movie that really needed to be remade. Uh, uh, think oof. about Exodus, Gods and Kings, with Christian Bale as Ra- Moses, I believe. Uh, Did Alex Price direct that? That was Ridley Scott. Was oh right. So he did. He did another one with Gerard Butler. So so here's oh Terrible. oh that one. Uh, are you thinking of oh my god? Uh, what that? That was that Greek god movie that I saw that was awful. No, 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 no. That that was similar too. There was a lot of those types so, of movies in like a two year span. But, but here's my here's my train of thought. So you think back to the fifties. You had Cecil B. DeMille, biblical epics, like landmarks of cinema. Whether you're religious or not, I think Gibson is the only guy that could actually dutifully pull off something close to that level in this age. Because nobody else, I think, could, I don't think anybody else could do that. Maybe somebody like. If you gave him the money and the budget, maybe somebody like Robert Eggers because of his eye for production value and, and aesthetics and whatnot. But Gibson, since he has a real personal attachment to it, I'd be really interested to see. Actually, if this movie's going to come out, I got to say, I would love to see him kind of make, again, his Ten Commandments or Ben-Hur of a new era. Because like we all agreed, the original Passion, is it's well made, a little too bleak. But if he goes uplifting, goes more for the high notes of the story and has it off the hook, uh, technically, I think I think he's the guy that's capable of making that that modern classic. I mean, I think that's the problem is nobody that is working in the industry seems to have at least an open attachment to that kind of material. We can take a look at Kanye West releasing his most recent album. And as popular as that was, it was massive. There were still people that criticized it just based off of the, the foundation of, of where that was coming mm. from. So I, I, I have a feeling that, you know, these popular entertainment industries just don't think it's going to be successful to pursue that for whatever reason, even though we've seen the exact opposite every single time. The very, the very ironic thing about them not wanting to do biblical st- stories is they're cheap. It's desert and cloth. And then uh, the story, you know, that's yeah. about it. So that's the thing that's always... You don't even need to do makeup. Yeah. Everybody can just be long-haired and shaggy, too. Right. So. You only have to... And they only mm-hmm. build, you know, a few sets. So it's like, put up a, po- a couple of columns, add the rest in posts. There we go. Everyone's wrapped in a sheet, and we shoot it out in the desert. That's that's about and, it. And especially given Gibson's track record, <laughs> I, I'll have to look at the numbers for... Um, Hacksaw Ridge, but Apocalypto, you guys are saying it might be even your favorite of his bunch. He only made that for $40 million. So the guy knows how to get the bang for bang for the buck. 
Mm. So you could even give him probably on a production like this new passion film that's apparently happening. You could give him probably 50 to 75 million and he could make that look like a $250 million movie based on his track record. Mm-hmm. Now, what if we see this movie and it looks like George Lucas's prequel trilogy, where it's just all green screens and done very poorly? Like, what if he what if he hits the wall as a director with this film, and it just it looks as bad as anyone could imagine? Given his affinity for his uh, eternal salvation, he better fucking hope not, because if he fucks it up, he's gonna be like, "Fuck, I am burning in hell for this." Um, I think he actually has a a pretty solid eye for effects um did you act uh, um did you know he was originally played the alcoholic father part in hacksaw ridge and they reshot it all yeah i think i I think i'd heard that yeah um, just before seeing it there's one part where they where he brings the um the letter to try and get him you know when they're when they're having the little court case there with the uh with the military kind of tribunal or whatever in hacksaw ridge there's one shot where um, what's his name from the Matrix? Uh, Hugo Weaving. Hugo Weaving. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Hugo Weaving's character is leaving, but if you look at the shot, that's Mel Gibson uh, leaving the leaving the door, and they actually shot, I think, all of that scene. They green screened in uh, Hugo Weaving, and when you look at the color, like if you do color on your own projects, you'll probably you might be able to spot. Uh, a little bit of a difference but they did an amazing amazing job of like not having to reshoot the whole thing and just kind of putting hugo weaving into into that sequence so whatever whatever he does i think i hope it's effects driven because he's one of those he's got the previs previs uh chops because the biggest thing now is just shoot whatever we'll put it in post you know it's like ghostbusters pretend there's a ghost on your shoulders (laughs) what's it gonna look like we don't know yet yeah, we'll figure that out in two days from now. I feel like it's the same thing as the Fury Road fear. I feel like he was like, this movie's too important for me to endanger it by anybody seeing me or uh, attaching me or, you know, aside, he, he's already directing it. So it's like, you know, I could put myself in it to save time and money, which is something any filmmaker does when they're, especially when they're trying to save time and money is just like i know the part i'll just play it. it it's fine it's not a it's not a huge issue but him playing an alcoholic yeah. <laughs> who who beats his wife and threatens his son with a gun i feel like that would have been too anybody's gonna be it's just ripe for parody from everybody so i think it was a wise decision to avoid uh being in it that film racked up quite a few nominations and it did as i mentioned before reintegrate him back into the mainstream system. So uh, the Passion of the Christ Resurrection, or the Resurrection of the Christ, as the Wikipedia page says, is going to be coming out next year. I, I got to say, given this conversation, I'm, I'm actually pretty excited to see what they do with this, really. Do you, do you guys see the Mark Burnett produced Bible series that came out yeah, last yeah. year? That was pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I thought that they were going to start doing more things like that of just using Bible stories. But I think they did that and they did the Red Veil, I think it was called or something like that, or the Red Tent. And then that just died. Uh, but those that, that series is really well done. So uh, if you were looking for like something Bible related that's recent, that Mark Burnett series is really good. I think Hans Zimmer did the soundtrack for it. 
Uh, mm. So it has some big names, at least in the production side. Uh, the actors are mostly unknown actors, so that makes it a little bit better, I think. Uh, they chopped but, that uh, that miniseries up into a two and a half yeah. hour film that came out in theaters. I think it maybe about a year after the series concluded, and that I re- I recall that doing pretty decent numbers as well. So to kind of back up what I was saying about Gibson's um, kind of efficiency with budget, I'm seeing right here actually within an article uh, about the new Passion of the Christ film, he made the original Passion of the Christ in 2004. For $30 million. That's a really impressive feat. For wow. again, even, even in 2004, $30 million, mm, still on the kind of low tier yeah. of budgets, maybe mid tier if you, for the sake of argument. Uh, but $30 million for that movie, mm-hmm. I'm saying he, he could make this next one for a very similar budget. And he's probably going to get similar box office returns uh, if that made as it said in the article, $610 million. Mm. I don't see why he couldn't do that again, especially, again, given his uh, efficiency. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's uh, universal that it's probably going to be a hit, especially since there is more of a taste, I would say now. Again, just based off of like the success of that Kanye West album, there seems to be a growing affinity toward that type of content or material going back to the well, I guess, than maybe 10 years ago. So... Have has anybody seen um, uh, Hail Caesar? Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Mm-hmm. I feel like <laughs> Hail Caesar to me felt like a giant middle finger, but I wasn't sure who it was directed at. In in my opinion, <laughs> in, in my opinion, I saw that as the Cohen brothers, yeah, flipping off the industry they work for, flipping off petulance and yeah. self righteousness and meandering and the kind of uh, hidden underground of of Hollywood, even as they portrayed, I believe, in the 1950s. Right. Um, they're kind of making the point, I think, that uh, there's always been these kind of weird antics going on under the radar. It's just been harder to hide in recent years. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they, yeah, that was a fun movie. That was, that was a really good one. That was... There's so many great sequences in that. And... I was like, should I be laughing at this? Because this is being portrayed as comical. But I was like, this is basically what <laughs> happened back then. <laughs> and then on top of that, it was, ironically to me, it was that movie I saw as there's this underlying tone of like the speaking to biblical ethics is like uh, biblical epics, kind of this death of the old Hollywood system, uh, the golden age, the death of the golden age. And then the start, but the start of it, and then once upon a time in Hollywood felt like the end of the death of it. You know what I mean? Because it, it lasted a while. Somebody said, you know, uh, like old Hollywood died when John Wayne did his last film, and that's kind of how I saw Once Upon a Time. It's like you're they're transitioning. You know, the fifties were the height, and then they you get into the sixties, and there's some great flicks. But the '70s is when people think of gritty, down, down and dirty, like Easy Rider. That was '69, and that's like, to me, that's well, like it, Hollywood's it, no longer all, the thing you, it used to be. This is what we're doing now. We're on it, motorcycles. It's all about you know when the um, the studio system kind of just fell flat on its face, and I think I think we're in the midst of that happening again mm. uh, in the in the 2020s. If it if it hasn't already happened in part 
in the 2010s, I think the 2020s may definitively be that that next face plant, given uh, declining box office numbers and attendances. You, you can look at all the box office records that are quote unquote happening these days, but they're not when adjusted for inflation by any means. Right. Yeah. The, uh, it's all story stuff too. I, I, I was talking about this with somebody recently where he was saying something about movies and I was like, dude, the biggest problem is you don't have a guy that's like, here's this script I've been working on for 10 years. I've put my heart and soul into this. Will you help me make this? And people are like, absolutely. We, uh, we love your stick to it, if and your tenacity. That's not it. Now it's, uh, all right, let's look at the box office numbers and determine the script we're going to write based on a bunch of data and then make someone sit down and, and write it rather than some guy being like, I've been eating my shoelaces to survive so that I could do <laughs> the thing that I have always wanted to do. And here it finally is, you know, like we've seen, um, that's why I, I was just going to say, it, it, it's <clears throat> funny you say that because the article uh, came out maybe about a week or two ago where we're seeing that Warner brothers is considering looking to an algorithm to help determine what's going to be the most financially successful. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Awesome, O three thousand. Adam Sandler Adam's... falls in love with a dog. We'll call it have, puppy love. Have you guys seen that new it's app? Fixical, that yeah. it's a uh, it's a video app. So you you it's to you know to produce video content. But depending on what part of whatever video you're watching, it asks you to turn your phone screen so that you can see something different, and then you turn your phone to see you know a different point of view or something like that, and that's. It's like a new new app that they're uh, introducing as a different way of watching movies. Just you know, you're going to be flipping your phone over and over again be- mm. to show you something different. It's terrible idea. Awful. Why would I do I, that? It's awful. Yeah, I don't want to move it. But all. like, I, actually... I think of that, and then I think of you know that rumor that came out where apparently Netflix was going to start uh, playing or giving the option of playing their content slightly faster so that you could consume more stuff. And I feel like we have all of these companies trying to figure out what the next big thing would be uh, because, you know, streaming is saturated. So every every streaming service (laughs) is pretty much the same as the next. Uh, But but I I feel like no one's focusing on the content. And now it's more like what's the new gimmick that's going to get people watching uh, when it should be, you know, let's just have people watch movies the same way that they've been watching forever. And not change that there i i remember uh when when 3d started to come back and then people were getting like the 360 cameras i had <laughs> i have a treatment i still kind of have a treatment for you guys could take this i think i feel like if you guys did something with this it would be great but my thing was okay you got the video game crowd you got online distribution how about perspective switches in the same story so the story is the story and you just get to spend a you see a 360 version of that particular character's viewpoint throughout a whole thing. So I had written this idea where it was it, it, from a production side, it was a little person in a helmet with the the camera at eye level oh, with first. all the actors. And then the the person was it was like you, it was kind of a choose your own adventure. And it was like a, it was like just standard, like bonfire setup. 
in a warehouse where it's a bunch of kids meeting and then a, a murderer shows up. You know what I mean? But each it was one long take of like 15 minutes from four or five different perspectives. And then uh, you got I, you chose which person you went with each time. And then as a result, that was it. And I was like, well, then you can give somebody a few hours like. I was like, that was the only gimmick I, thing I ever. I thought, thought they of. did like, something like that. At a, I'd be I remember uh, <laughs> five, maybe seven, eight years ago. I remember them announcing something similar where it was like a horror movie, I think, and uh, the movie would play on the screen, and then it would stop and ask you to choose wherever the character will go next. It's like Bandersnatch from like seven years like ago, and Castle for whatever reason, it's just they, they continue trying to come up yeah. with you know different ways of engaging, you know, being a part of the movie. And it's just like we just want to watch something, you know. I don't, I don't want, I don't want to have to be paying attention to my phone just to see like, okay, so now it's pausing and let me choose something. <laughs> right. I, I feel like that's why, at least personally, Bandersnatch was kind of uh, whatever because uh, you know it, it, you right. would have to stop uh, uh, to select whatever the guy would do next but then the story what's wasn't really anything special so then at the end you're done and you're just like all right well this wasn't really worth it and i no. don't think they're gonna do that again mm -hmm. at least anytime soon just because it was a, a whatever experiment like i you don't see anyone talking about bandersnatch now you know it's as simple as that that shit came out what last year right yeah or two years ago it, it, 2018 yeah there was nothing to it i mean the, the story felt very underdeveloped if they had if they had spent twice the amount of time that they had developing what eventually came out i think maybe they could have had something but as it was it, you know and they marketed marketed the the thing as a movie yeah. when it was really just like it felt like an incomplete first draft of an episode it was it was so whatever and i think that that that's the issue is when they go gimmick first then they dump story writing onto a person. If you can find somebody that goes, oh man, I love this gimmick. This is spectacular. I go, I got all kinds of ideas and let them run with it. I mean, that'll be good. But I think, I think the majority of people in Hollywood would be like, yes, I love it when they hate it so they can get a paycheck. Uh, I, I think I read recently that Chicken Run is getting a sequel oh. now. Is, now is that it's Mel, okay to hire uh, Mel Gibson. Uh, yeah. Mel's back. So everyone's like, oh, all right. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't really be Chicken Run without him, I don't think. But I haven't, I haven't read that deeply. He is it's not on his Wikipedia. He is an exception. I will say he he's an exceptionally charismatic actor. Uh, th there isn't a time I can't think of a time in his entire career where I was like, "Ugh, Mel, are you sure that was how you wanted to play the part or the make that?" You know, I although I haven't seen the Professor and the Mad Men yet, but. Uh, even even the voice acting, I remember, like, he just genuinely, I think, is... There's those actors that come in and they've got ideas, and then there's actors that come in and go, how do you want me to play the part? And I think those that second group is where he he is, where he's like, you're the director, how do you want me to do it? And then, and I always feel like they they tend to turn in much better performances than uh, than someone who might come in and... Even if they're gung ho about it, when they've got their ideas, um, that can that can skew the the creative vision. So they hire you for a reason. They hire you because you're Mel Gibson to voice a chicken, and and you know, and uh, and he genuinely like plays it up just enough, just cartoony enough, or you know, he's just subdued enough. Like I don't know, he just tonally never stands out or clashes with whatever 
whatever he's cast as. It's, it's kind of bizarre in a certain way. Is there somebody who is as talented as Mel Gibson in one of the newer generations who has really is firing from all cylinders? I guess it depends on oh, specific criteria. <laughs> is it Jordan Peele? Is it Jordan Peele? You know, you know, it's funny. Uh, I I actually had a couple uh, of ideas that popped right in my head, and they might sound weird, but just bear with me. Not Jordan Peele. Fuck no. Um, yeah, I I think he's an Aussie, and if he's not, he's uh he's from New Zealand or uh, Britain. Uh, Joel Edgerton is actually really capable. If you've seen some of the movies he's directed as well mm. uh he's a he's a decent actor he has a really good thriller that came out a couple of years ago i think he was he wrote and directed as well and he acted in called the gift it's with him That's... and jason bateman who i was also going to reference who that i think is actually a really competent director and actor so oh you saw that one the gift that yeah, was good yeah so th- there were a couple people out there maybe not on that level just yet like, again, I, I see both of those uh, actors and directors as really competent, multi-talented guys. But, I mean, again, you have Gibson, who at age, I think, 39, or maybe just upon his 40th birthday, he put out Braveheart. And it's like, I, I mean, that, that movie's gotten its due and everything, but you have to take into, a, into account the juncture of his career, his age, and then, yeah, you, there, there's not many people that are that close, certainly not at the age of about 39 or 40 years old. I don't know about, I mean, the gift, the gift felt a little too close to old boy for me. And I really just oh, like okay. Joel Edgerton's awful wig and his Toby Keith facial hair in that movie. It fucking sucked. That was, that was bad. Okay. Oh. Okay. The, the, the facial hair aside, I thought it was a pretty decent movie. I mean, yeah, just, was- just Google the gift poster and it's him holding a box that's clearly photoshopped and it's his awful hair oh yeah mustache beard combo yeah that looks so unnatural on him i would never want to watch that movie based off that poster uh i would say um we i don't i don't think we even touched on this connection but i would say maybe shia labeouf i haven't seen the movie he just did but shia is one of those guys who He's never phoning it in. Doesn't matter what he's in. You, you can tell he's in it to win it, whatever part he's playing. And I think that's a very good comparison. I I, I think there's definitely something to that. Did did you see? Did anybody actually? Did anybody see uh, anything about the Rothschild movie that immediately that he's doing with Mel? Yeah, that that was that was when I I I was like, oh, Mel and Shia, that would be very interesting. And then it got attacked before it even it was in merely an announcement and then the new which, and then there was news outlets that were attacking it already and i was like wow he's the, the most cancelable movie of the year apparently <laughs> like, <what? laughs> is it still in production is it still i mean i i didn't read anything that they were going to pull the plug on it but it, it's been a while since i heard anything yeah i i saw it announced then i saw it denounced um and then uh and then i was like Okay, well, I'll keep an eye out, keep an ear out for that. But no, I haven't heard word one about it since. So that could be extremely interesting. I mean, just a movie with those two guys alone playing the lead roles is going to be fire no matter what. Mm. But with that particular subject matter and the fact it's going to be like a satire of some kind, mm. uh, I, I'm I'm very intrigued by what could potentially come. 
Shia seems like a loose cannon, I think, but there's times where I'm like, I think he's just not afraid to <laughs> genuinely go off and be like, oh, I'm going to lose my shit right now. You know, you ever met anybody mm-hmm. that that said, that like warns you ahead of time? Like, I'm not in a good mood <laughs> and I'm about to let you know how bad that mood is. And you're like, well, thanks for the warning. Like, that's the kind of guy he strikes me as where he doesn't, he's not out to, you know, be an asshole, but if he's upset, you're gonna know and like that's those are the actors that are it's like a like a Heath Ledger you know where or uh who else who who's another like a River Phoenix I guess yeah, although he never got old enough to do it but uh where those guys just they're they're like they come in on the day and uh they're like I had a really bad night last night and then if you're a good director you go do you want to shoot this other scene <laughs> now then where you're super pissed and you're like that'd be great I feel like I feel like Shy is one of those one of those guys, whereas Mel Gibson is one of those people that he can show up and be whatever you need to on the day. And there's strengths and weaknesses to both, but seeing those two guys together could be it could be bonkers. I feel yeah, like that would be dynamite. Mm-hmm. I I just read because I, I was just doing a quick search mm-hmm. to see what the status of that movie was. Uh, apparently, he he told his father, and and Honey Boy is essentially about. Shia LaBeouf's dad. Mm. He told his father in order for him to be okay with the fact the movie was in production that Mel Gibson was going to play him in the movie. So he's just right. I've I've read that, and I've read that I he had told his dad that it was about him uh, just being a great father that he's going to make him look awesome in the film. And I actually the the movie I think ends with a line like "I'm going to make you look great, Dad," or it's it's, it's got some kind of like weird like in in joke. To the fact that he just made this movie right self-referential i've uh, i've yet to watch that but i look forward to it uh it's great it's a very well done movie yeah why don't we just put a pin in things there tim thank you for popping on this episode where can people find your stuff and your work um you can uh you can find me on instagram that's the best place right now that's where i'm amassing people to direct them to other places so at tim stabers is uh the best place to find me on instagram